out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is The C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. And this week, it's going to be the turn of the country singer-songwriter all the way from Nashville. They is Laura Cantrell who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry and everything else in between. Anyway, she wasn't in Nashville. She was in New York City, so that made it easy. Anyway, so after several minutes of casual chat, talking about this and that, as you do, that is the world of show business. We got down to a very exciting subject that was the early formative years, because we love to start at a good place in life. Anyway, Laura, take it away. What was your earliest musical influences? Please take notes. It's an educational experience. Well, I came from, both my parents are very much music fans. So I had, uh, you know, uh, and they're different generations. My dad is 10 years older than my mom. So he liked quite older pop music, like um, stuff that was kind of old when he was even a young man. So he liked, you know, the old, old singers and um, you know, stuff that was, uh, Hoagie Carmichael and, uh, Bing Crosby and stuff like that. But he also was from rural West Tennessee and they very much were steeped in local, uh, bluegrass music and, uh, country music of that era. So that was my dad's side of the family. My mom was 10 years younger and, um, kind of a young hip mom. So she loved Joan Baez and Dylan and, and had, um, you know, kind of song, singer songwriter records of the '60s and um, and early '70s in my house. So there was a lot of like kind of competing. Like when Dad was listening, it was very different <laughs> than when my mom was listening. But it kind of got me into both. Um, I loved old movies. I loved old film music, and um, and uh, and I remember listening to the Grand Ole Opry and knowing who all the older stars were of the Opry, like Ernest Tubb and. And Hank Williams and people like that. So that was just kind of normal background of my music, how the music in our household. Um, I think when I was in high school, I probably realized that I was a little bit more of a serious music fan because I would buy albums and look at the liner notes and yes. and um, uh, you know, and really didn't have. I mean, we I was kind of a new wave kid. We liked uh, you know whatever was coming around that was new, but definitely Elvis Costello and um, Nick Lowe. <laughs> and um, when we found out, you know, there were younger bands like R.E.M., <laughs> you know, coming to play at the frats at Vanderbilt. That was happening when I was still in high school. So, you know, we tried to be a little bit up on the local music scene in Nashville, too. Yes. So yes. it was a little bit, you know, I, I would say I wouldn't didn't think of myself as a particularly... Um, interested fan of country music uh, in that time frame, but I was a music fan. And yeah. then, you know, when I left to go to college and I realized that not everybody grew up listening to um, Bill Monroe and Hank Williams and the older music, that that was something that I was interested in going back and being more serious about learning about. Yes. Well, it's interesting because my parents were, uh, my dad was probably born just before the Second World War. And so was my mum because they, they had quite different experiences. My mum, because they were on the East Coast of my East Anglia. So my mum, their family were in something called service. So they would work for an aristocratic family. 
so when the war came they all just went to Devon you know they were like my mum's my grandparents were probably the gardener and the, and the cook and my mum was very small my dad stayed you know on this very small farm and they had the American because we we grew up in a village which had a second world war aerodrome you know so the Americans you know the friendly invasion they called it so they would sort of just have to sort of have Americans that came and stayed in the, in the farm and then he was kind of into Elvis, but then as he got older, he was into country. But the country that I remember listening to when I was quite young, which slightly scarred me, it was things like Boxcar Willie and, um, <laughs> and Jim Reeves and things like that, which was a little bit, you know, and, um, and it took a few more years, well, decades really, and then listened to other country that I thought, oh, okay, because at first it was a bit like opera or, yeah, opera or something which is like really hard on the ears, you know, Boxcar Willie, I can still remember that quite that quite vividly really as a young yes <laughs> well and it's it's funny I mean there's some I think if you I mean there's definitely some country music when you listen to it no matter what who the artist is it's some of it's just very sentimental and um you know uh it's it doesn't it, it can be it can take a little while I think to hear the the craft in the songwriting and and the you know start to distinguish between different artists and different voices different types of country music so i understand yes. that <laughs> and there was so. another one talking of um just slightly briefly but there was another one which had that one about it was called no charge or no change where the person has handed his mum some bill yes. and she then comes back with all this stuff and there was another one about this person playing cards in church and then was going to get sort of I don't know shot or court martialed and then he said all these cards mean something quite about you right got, you know that's I don't the, know that's the uh, the soldier's deck of cards yeah um so it was it was a famous it's actually probably from a famous old it's actually probably English it's from an old poem or something right. and it's popped up in country music in a few different eras there was a world war ii version there was a vietnam version called vietnam deck of cards and it's <laughs> the same story where the soldier's playing with a deck of cards in church and he looks to be um you know quite blasphemous uh and not recognizing the lord's day and he's goes back and then tells how all the significance of the cards is about you know yes. remembering his bible <laughs> so. and then he gets he probably gets promoted to captain or something <laughs> that's very good so look then in the 80s i suppose because i missed punk because i was a bit too young for it i had an old brother who was seven years old and he was really into prog rock like yes and genesis and all those and i thought that was quite interesting but then and then it was the 80s and it was discovering sort of john peel in 1982 83 and and it was that kind of thing and you'd get the the weekly music paper called the NME and sort of becoming obsessed with like all those bands like the Smiths and the June Brides and right. lots of indie stuff. But then anything that John played, you know, from the Bundu Boys to rap, early rap music, I thought, oh yeah, I must go and see Public Enemy because John Peel likes it. So obviously, you know, <laughs> not not at all being brainwashed, am I? So then he started playing, you know, a few little country moments and that's got obviously jumping forward a few decades. But then, but during the 80s, that must have been your sort of period or decade where you, you know, had sort of, yeah, late teens and, and sort of 20s, yeah. really, wasn't it? So what were your, eight, you know, the, the 80s, which was a very strange period, because we had Thatcher, who came in 79, then you, you know, obviously really quite major, you had Reagan. So what was your 80s like? Well, I, you know, probably had very typical music tastes, you know, I listened to the radio, we didn't have a John Peel figure. So you were really at the mercy of, of how good your local you know, radio was, um, it, you know, being in the South, also growing up in Tennessee, there was kind of like an overhang of Southern rock, even af like kind of after the, you know, Allman Brothers and, 
and uh you know all the those other bands like i remember a girl in my school having a notebook and she had every southern rock band's name written on the notebook and then all the little spin-offs of like you know what the um, leonard skinner's offshoot bands and i mean it was like a crazy <laughs> obsession <laughs> But that was very much like part, you know, probably mostly because like if you had older siblings or whatever, they had gone to see these bands and, you know, Freebird and everything, you know. So it's, it's, yes. uh, that was kind of the dominant, you know, uh, what was kind of the dominant culture in Southern music, I think Southern radio on rock radio. So when stuff like, you know, when they started to play things like Blondie and, um, you know, the cars and again, Elvis and Elvis's first, you know, um, U.S. hit was a little later when, when MTV started like that. I was very much in the MTV generation. So we sort of soaked up everything that we could, you know, whether it was even on like our local radio at that point or not. Um, but, uh, you know, it was a big deal, for instance, in Nashville when the police first came yes, <laughs> to Nashville. Absolutely. And when, again, I, I, I missed getting to see Elvis and Nick Lowe both. They both played the small club in Nashville. And I remember being mad uh, at my pals who got to go. And there's some complex thing where, I, like, I couldn't get a ride or something. And so I missed a good show. But, um, you know, that's, that was kind of... Um, you know, being aware of like the sort kind of national, um, you know, the, the, the dwindling, I guess, of like that old Southern rock stuff and that there were these new things coming up. And then again, REM, you know, who were coming up from Athens, Georgia to play the frat houses in Nashville and that stuff starting to be popular. That was, it was like, um, um, you know, kind of a moment where, you know, that, that did seem new and interesting to people my age and, um, you know, I was definitely, uh, you know, kind of intrigued. I think I al always did like, um, you know, sort of storytelling or good songwriters, people who wrote like stories and songs. I remember being obsessed with, you know, some of the stuff on a Dire Straits record because all those songs ha quite had a structure to them, you know, yeah. that were and told stories of different people. Um, I wasn't cool enough to have you know, figured out like the kinks, Muswell Hillbillies, like that, I, that wasn't till later. <laughs> I figured out like, oh, they made kind of a country folky record too. Yes, I know. Um, but, um, you know, it was all like, I was just kind of vacuuming up whatever, um, you know, was out on, on MTV or on the radio. Um, and then certain things stuck with me when I came to New York. Um, I had, I knew, you know, I really loved Elvis and Nick Lowe and I, kind of gravitated towards friends that had, um, you know, or t towards people in that I would meet in college who had similar tastes, but also I, I seemed to fall in with, uh, because I'd been sort of a, you know, um, music fan kid that we didn't have in Nashville. Like there weren't too many kids reading fanzines that I c could tell in my Catholic high school. Yeah. So, um, but there was a little teeny bit, a nascent indie scene that was, um, there was like one all ages club and there were a couple of thrift stores downtown that were not just like the Salvation Army or big charity shops, but actually seemed to be kind of curated a little bit by these hipster girls who worked there who would, you know, were wearing like beautiful, beautifully kind of <laughs> reimagined old clothes um, and had cool music playing. And there was a, there was a um, one 
uh, radio station at Vanderbilt, the university in Nashville that played, uh, you know, the alarm and <laughs> whatever, like bands that weren't, weren't American and, and were part of the new wave stuff yes. from England. So that's, yeah, that's interesting. Cause, cause I can, you know, cause obviously with us, and this is quite a sweeping statement really, but there was the kind of the indie scene, which was kind of left of center, you know, and it was like the Smiths and, and there was a movement called Red Wedge where they were trying to sort of get the kids to vote to get Thatcher out. So there was all those kind of angsty bands, you know, because right. it was quite a political time because we had the, the you know, Falkland crisis war right. and we had the miners strike. And then, you know, there was a lot of unemployment at that stage. And then in the other side, there was the, the mainstream charts, which had that Trevor Horn production sound, which had Frankie Goes to Hollywood. And there was right. Tina Turner, that kind of like, wow. Right which dates really badly now, doesn't it? Right. <laughs> and then you had that hair metal from um, LA, didn't you? You had those guys with that amazing hair with just, you know, Bon Jovi right. and, and all right. that. So there was, it was kind of funny, you know, it was very tribal. But then the other thing that happened in the 80s was that suddenly you had, because you mentioned Joan Byers and singer-songwriters and, and the, you know, there was, you know, we all love Joni Mitchell and Carol King's Tapestry. But then in the 80s, you know, there was like suddenly Susan Vega came along and then Michelle Schock and then Tracy Chapman, and we had, you know, Sinead O'Connor. So suddenly these kind of four kind of women sort of appeared, you know, with guitars and sort of writing these kind of Nicky songs. And we all were very taken with them as well because, you know, that all fitted in. So did you, did you start to sort of get inspired with some of those contemporaries that were happening? Well, I do think there was, you know, it's interesting because there was a very um, kind of almost like a, a cyclical thing of the, the 80s referring back to the 60s in a way and or um you know in the united states we were probably less politically aware um even though there were plenty of people who were anti-reagan you know most everybody's parents liked reagan <laughs> so um <laughs> including mine um but um but there was when i found that when i went to college um and i was in new york that i felt like there was this more consciousness there'd been this great you know um, there'd been riots on campus in the late 60s at Columbia and where I went to school. And um, so there was, a, a, you know, um, I kind of feel like there was a, a political awareness. Um, and some of that also happened in music. Um, for me personally, what I watched around me was this resurgence of like, um, of stuff from the 60s, like the dead and... Uh, you know, the De Grateful Dead started to go on tour when I was um, in college for the first time in many years. So there was like this sweep of like almost kind of a second wave psychedelia that was happening. Um, but it was with all the bands that, you know, had done it the first time around or yes. at least with the de deadheads. Um, so like there was a prominent deadhead culture and a lot of kids dropping acid and taking ecstasy and stuff um, in that um so i would say it made me a little you know i i felt a little cynical about that i thought it was a little bit lame to be all like you know uh enlightened um college kid of the 80s but like listening to the dead you know yeah. just didn't, seemed a little bit like a consumerist at that point um and i also had again you know i'm i was sort of exploring my own interest in country music and how serious that would be so to hear um what i started hearing myself was strains of things that had been kind of country music that would pop up in this stuff um and uh you know like um you know the dead 
covering Merle Haggard or um, uh, I guess I don't have a better example than that top of mind right now. But, um, you know, I it just kind of drove me away from that into just pursuing and really getting immersed in that sort of what I thought of as the source material yes. of all that stuff. Um, and, you know, I so while I certainly, you know, uh, Suzanne Vega was um, had gone to Barnard and had her her presence was felt very much around the campus and that type of singer songwriter stuff was very celebrated. Um, it sort of was like in a little parallel to what I was really starting to, to dive into in terms of my own interest. Um, so, you know, I was aware of it, um, but kind of not paying as close attention to that as I was, um, you know, like I remember people, there was one Michelle shocked record where she's, um, it's actually kind of, it's a less political record and she's very, um, um, you know, it's an acoustic record and it has kind of folky songs on it. And I remember somebody being really into that record. And Well, um, I remember her first one. It was recorded, I think, around a campfire. I think it was probably something like campfire right. sessions. And you can hear like crickets and you can vaguely hear vehicles. And I think someone recorded it. And this is kind of, I might be completely wrong here. But the person went, oh, listen to this. And they started cooking vinyl records. That might be completely wrong. <laughs> but there was that kind of story from only 35 years ago that I can remember that was like and, and hearing it and there was this track called 5am in Amsterdam and it was just very I thought this is quite extraordinary because again you know you had that whole production sound and then you had this album by Michelle Shot, and then her next album was Short Sharp Shock and then she did one called Captain Swing which I didn't like at all so that was the end of that one but but you know those first couple <laughs> of albums it was kind of exciting because it was so different you know I think that was the thing about it which was but it was a very folk acoustic kind of collection right I think right it definitely hearkened to that stuff yeah. and also just the the power of one person one voice one guitar um you know all of that stuff but then interestingly enough I just got us um, I'm glad I've prepared this so well but then there was the other artist that we all fell in love with which was Nancy Griffith kind of during that period and I went to see her live and you know friends were obsessed with you know um, once in a blue moon and something about a diner and the Woolworths and stuff like that and so right, she, right. she became this kind of absolutely darling and she went from I can't remember what label but she went to MCA records and suddenly you know you couldn't move and you know members of U2 wanted a guest with her and it was all kind of very <laughs> exciting wasn't it so did that come onto your radar at all? Well it did and there were certainly you know when I was kind of at this point that you're describing, I was at, um, you know, in college and working at a, a radio station on campus. And I had sort of, you could trace like the the influence and the success of like Emmylou Harris, who, if you were looking for like indie cred, well, she had it in spades for being like the Graham Parsons, uh, yes. you know, muse and, you know, uh, being taught by him, a student, acolyte maybe. And then but then had quite a successful commercial career that helped, uh, that had this very pure and sort of throwback approach uh, sound where it was like, you know, um, uh, you know, again, just like the, the kind of main elements of country without a lot of 80s production and, um, you know, bombast and trying to make things sound. Um, Crossover. Yeah, to crossover, right. She didn't care. She didn't need to. I mean, she she managed to be a successful commercial yes. country artist with staying true to kind of a, a artistic vision that was holding up the, the sort of um, 
an older sensibility of country music and and just reimagining it by doing it in as a young woman you know um who were was doing Lumen Brothers songs and you know even old rock and roll stuff that she threw in like it, w- it would go through this filter where it would become uh you know just the Emmy Lou Harris sound and I think of course she also was such a s- celebrator of songwriters and um naturally kind of fell in with the group of, of writers like from Austin, like Nancy Griffith and Rodney Crowell and Guy Clark and all of those folks. So, um, you know, that was, uh, I was aware there was sort of like a, almost within the greater audience of country music or even just popular music, there was, a a subset that really liked the Emmy Lou approach and even like connected it back to Joan Baez and, you could say that Nancy Griffith was also like a modern folk artist, but one with, a, you know, from Texas, very much a country flair to what she did or element, um, you know, as opposed to, I don't know, Suzanne Vega or some of those other younger folk artists, you know, of the eighties. So, yes. um, you know, I that was to be mesmerized by the, I think the album was called Elite Hotel, Emily Harris. Right. Such a cool picture, isn't it? I mean, that's... <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I mean, well, with the crazy long, you know, she's just hair sitting there, just looking very bohemian yeah. and sort of yeah. everything you wanted. I have to confess, there are times though you want to like an artist or a band, and every time you play it, every five years, you still don't quite get it. It happens with the Incredible String Band and. You know, trite mask replica by Captain V Park because you just want and, and you want to love Pet Sounds by the Beach Boys, and you think I still don't quite get it. I won't admit that on air. Anyway, so when you went from being a radio DJ doing a country show, did you at that stage did you sort of feel like you'd started to want to become an artist yourself and and sort of become you know um, yes. Um, yeah, you know, just finding your voice and, and yes, learning to sing. Well, I did, um, you know, there was a little kind of like DIY group of kids um, in my in my friend group. And so some of them had made records and had been in bands and had even put out 45s and, and you know, CD singles and all kinds of stuff like that. So I was kind of, uh, you know, always wanted to, also play music and be in a band um but I wasn't sort of thinking in an organized or ambitious way like I'm going to do this and I'm going to have a band we're going to name it this we're going to record this put this out do these gigs it was more like for fun um but as I did it more I also um I mean the the radio um act you know being able to be on the radio I think allowed me to develop a kind of point of view and a voice um about uh, and sort of a my own taste, really. Uh, and then once that had happened, I realized if I were going to play and perform music that I would kind of want it to be um, sort of sent through some of the same filter of my taste of what I did, had done on the radio. So there were related. Um, but, you know, I was a very much an amateur musician. I had to learn to play guitar. I had played piano in school and had been in chorus, but I'd never like, you know, performed by myself or, um, you know, had to, uh, you know, an idea of like, what would a show be? What is a set of music when you're playing it? You know, if you have a set, you're going to play and people are going to come watch you. What are you going to do? What do you say in between songs? I had none of that sort of (laughs) skill set. So I had to kind of develop that. 
Um, but, you know, which kind of just organically I did as I, you know, played in a few different little bands in, in college. Um, I think though, once I was in a couple of little, you know, non-professional bands, I was realizing more that I was really interested in songwriting and I wanted to try my hand at that. Um, it was pretty intimidating. Uh, you know, you, you get something like, uh, the Lucinda Williams record that comes out on rough trade in the oh, late God, 80s. Yes. And it's that like, was... you know, it's like this revelatory thing, you know, that's just like this thing of beauty and, um, and then you realize like, wow, I'm very far away <laughs> from being able to, to do anything like that. But it was inspiring, you know, yes. to, to um, listen to that kind of writing um, that was so, so poetic, um, but also that the songs were really like solid, catchy, you know, they really, they're, they're songs, they're not short stories or poems, they're actually really well written yeah, it was Song. interesting because so, I because when that album came out, I suppose it was on rough trade, so it sort of gave it a bit of a like, I don't know, some sort of notice into it, say, oh, you know, because rough trade had got the Smiths at one stage. Now they had the Smiths, and I remember going to see that live concert in London, and that was when she had passionate kisses. But there were several right. really, really delicate ballads on that album, which were just stunning. And I have to say, it's always been, and also the cover was brilliant. But I always remember there was another artist called Victoria Williams who brought oh, out, yes. yeah. which might have been around that time or might have been later. And then Margaret Mary O'Hara, who was right. on Virgin Record with Miss America. We thought, great, I've discovered a new artist. This is great. And that was it. I was like, where did she go? That was kind mm. of weird, wasn't it? So that was quite an interesting time. So did you start doing like open mic sessions and, and sort of getting up and with a guitar and singing a couple of songs and then quickly sitting down going, oh my God, that's a bit scary. I was actually, when I kind of learned the lay of the land of the sort of local um, bar scene in New York where, you know, now I'm not a student, I'm living in New York City, I'm a young person paying rent and <laughs> trying to figure out how to, how to, um, you know, have regular gigs there was a lot of live music in new york of course that's it goes without saying there's always a lot of live music but at that time there were so many um you know restaurants you would go to and they would have a band play two or three sets a night um there were, were you know so there were a lot of a range of gigs you could get that were not like being on stage at cbgb or at some like you know esteemed club where you know, maybe a critic would see you. So there was a lot of space to get gigs and play in front of people, but not necessarily be yet, you know, ready for prime time. And so I did a lot of that. I played restaurant gigs and little, you know, there was these clubs on the Lower East Side that, you know, you'd have a gig every hour. And so, you know, my band would get a slot on one of those and on a Tuesday night at 10 o'clock or something. So, um, you know, I did a lot of that kind of gigging around. And I think for me, what I was, because I wasn't sort of, I didn't have a whole album worth of songs, but I was working on songwriting. So I would always try to like have well-chosen covers that I could then like slot one of my own songs in yes. and see, how, you know, see how it would fare next to the, you know, Loretta Lynn song just after it or whatever. And so it was just a, you know, I took some time to learn you know, what was working and also to learn how to lead a band. Um, I never really wanted to be a solo performer because I um, am, I'm just still pretty rudimentary guitar player. So I, I only 
you know, it sounds even when I've I've toured a lot in the UK as a duo, but I, I would be hard pressed to <laughs> to actually come and play on my own just because I feel like it gets kind of boring after a while hearing just the plain vanilla chords. But um Yes. Give me give me a couple guys with me and, uh, you know, we can make a good racket. So. Yes, you can. Yeah, you can add to something. Because then as we progressed into the 90s, I do remember sort of becoming very, there was the, 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 the suddenly, there were the other kind of artists, like there was Sean Colvin, there was Dar Williams, and then people, actually, I'm kind of a bit sketchy on the exact dates, but there was like Gillian Welsh and Stacey Earle had started coming along as well. And, right. and other bands like Uncle, Uncle, I'll just wave to him. I got to Pello and that kind of whole um, Americana scene, which it it sort of you know took the you know essence of country, but there was a sort of in indie quality there as well, wasn't there? You know, like right. Tweedy. So we all became very excited because I remember you mentioning there were people like Dwight Yoakam to begin with, wasn't there? And Steve Earle had sort of come along as well, which had sort of given it a bit more of a, a kind of push in the eighties. But there was these kind of new kind of world of singer-songwriters which had um yeah started getting into much more kind of mainstream success well it's interesting to see like um you know i think after you know steve earl uh and nancy griffith as you both you mentioned both of them they both in the 80s were on major labels out of nashville and they were recognized by the talent you know, uh, A&R people of Nashville that they were very talented, but they ultimately didn't really, you know, have um, like country radio kind of success. They built careers on that other audience that likes country music, but maybe doesn't like everything that Nashville puts out. And so there was a sort of recognition as you moved into the 90s that, you know, there were going to be artists like that, that would, um, you know, when they developed the, the, label in Nashville for a while called Lost Highway that had a bunch of folks on it, including Lucinda Williams. And I think Ryan Adams was on it and folks like that. Um, but there were, there were other big labels that were, were, you know, um, basically, uh, not Nashville labels, but putting out, um, artists that would tuck in to that category um musically but yes. were not ever they weren't ever going to try to sell them to country radio so you know somebody maybe like shelby lynn um who had tried her hand in nashville and then obviously you know became successful after quitting and <laughs> trying to be a country artist um and you mentioned gillian welch and uh, of course the the uh you know the oh brother soundtrack things like that that were so successful but um, without the help or hindrance of, you know, trying to be a commercial country thing. Out yes, of I suppose Shania. National. I suppose it was Shania Twain who sort of knocked it into a sort of mega stardom, didn't she? Really, that was right. that was kind of a God knows what year that was, but it was everywhere, wasn't it? Around the same time that she had that bombastic hit as well. I right, think. Shania there, Twain, and of course Garth, Garth Brooks had all the crazy, you know you know, dominated the sales in the 90s, early 2000s. So yes. it's, you know, turned country music into a much bigger business. So they took a lot less, fewer risks eventually because they were trying to aim for like, what's going to be the next multi-platinum selling thing? Yeah. Well, then you, you quit having baby artists like, you know, Kelly Willis, um, who certainly was a Nashville artist for a little while. But, you know, you, you the, the system didn't know how to deal with both kinds of things so so for me i i always just you know as a somebody who thought i might eventually make a record um i didn't have any idea where i might fit in all of that i definitely 
felt like I was more of an indie artist just in terms of, uh, you know, I wasn't assuming that I would sell a lot of records or, um, and when you have that kind of attitude, you know, right away, when you meet people who are in the business, they're not very impressed with somebody who's not sure how many records they're <laughs> going to sell. So, you know, I just feel like I, I didn't even try to think about that that much. Um, it was, it would have been, it was definitely a goal of mine to make an album. Um, and to, for me, the, that goal was really more about like having, um, uh, you know, enough good songs of my own and well-chosen covers by other people. And uh, I had been doing radio for long enough that I did know some other great writers who I really admired, like Amy Allison, who wrote The Whiskey Makes You Sweeter and was a New York-based writer, the daughter of Mose Allison, um, or Amy Rigby, who um, is still quite active and tours a lot when we can all, when we can tour, she's usually out there, um, and had had a great indie record on Koch Records, The Diary of a Mod Housewife, um, which I took, you know, a song from that and recorded it on my second album. So I, I knew where to find good songs that would fit with my own Yes. Um, and to try to, but that wouldn't seem like just me covering Tammy Wynette or Loretta Lynn. Like they, they could seem like classic songs, but were from less recognizable sources. So that I think helped me also, uh, you know, come up with something that felt original, even if all the songs were written by me. Because, <laughs> uh, yeah, so bring, bring this up to Not the Trembling Kind, which was kind of the, the one that we all suddenly went, oh, this is very exciting. Um, <laughs> so did you start recording that, the, you know, in 1999? Was that the kind of beginning of, of putting that, that uh, collection out? Yeah, I had, um, I had worked with um, John Flansburg from They Might Be Giants and done a little EP um, called The Hello Recordings. He, that was a label he had just as side project of his um and there were a few original tunes of mine on that um and then uh that was probably in like 96 or 7 um and i just you know probably by i had a band at that time and we were working on the songs and, and starting to play out the songs that would be on trembling kind and um I just, you know, I recorded it with a friend who was in my band at the time, Jay Sherman Godfrey, and we were home recording and um, using local studios. So it was very much, a, um, I'm sorry, I'm a little distracted because you're getting a good dose of New York City, like a car alarm is going on. <laughs> um, pardon me. But um, so, you know, we, we were all people who had jobs and did other things to pay the rent. So it was a little bit of a slow process, but that allowed it to like, we finished the first four songs and we thought they sounded great and we were really happy with them. And then, um, Jay was going on vacation and, uh, he and his wife came up to Scotland for some reason that I don't remember who they were visiting, but, um, they'd been in touch with, uh, Francis McDonald from, uh, Shoeshine Records and all, of course, from Teenage Fan Club. Uh, and they just made a, um, you know, a, a date to have a beer with him. Like they didn't even know him. They were just, they'd been mutual friends had connected them. And so while they were talking, Jay was like, oh, I've been working with this, this, you know, uh, female singer songwriter and I have a few songs. I'll leave them with you if you want to hear them. So, you know, he did that, um, 
before, you know, we only had those four songs recorded and Francis really loved them. And I think could see that there was something going on with kind of a rise of Americana in the UK. Um, I'm forgetting what the band name was. Is it the Be Good Tanya's? That is that band. Oh yes, they did. Yeah. Yes, Be Good Tanya. So they had a, they had a really big record that came from left field. It was a you know an indie record, and they're I think they're Canadian. Um, but the, Francis was watching that kind of blow up um, in sort of UK folk circles, and heard my four songs and contacted me and was like, "Have you? Are you finishing a record? Are you making it? You know, maybe we could put it out." And I, it hadn't occurred to me yet what we were going to do with the songs. We thought we were making a record, but we hadn't thought yet at all about how we would put it out. So that was just a fortuitous kind of, um, you know, uh, nudge really to go ahead and complete an album. And then we decided we would go ahead and take him up on putting out, you know, a record, um, you know, with his Scottish-based label. So as you can see, it was not like this well-planned, like, you know, business plan, like we're going to do this, this, and this. It was really very spontaneous and, and, um, and, uh, you know, just fortuitous, I guess. And did, um, did the Hello recordings, is that the one you do, do a cover of New Order's Bizarre Love, uh, Love Triangle on, or is that a totally different? Oh, no, no. I did, um, I did, Oh, Love Vigilantes. Oh, that's on, the one, yes. But, but it's on a different, it's on an EP we put out a few years later. Right, Trains okay, and Planes. God. So then how did it then, you know, so yes, the Bigger Tanias, they didn't, yeah, they, they suddenly, I think in a way, I don't know if everyone's like this, but I think in Britain, the UK, we we just get very excited about everything, don't we? So, you know, <laughs> at that stage, you know, and I, I think we also, there, there was the kind of gatekeepers, that's something that I sort of really, remember especially from that 80s period and probably the 90s as well um you know we had the music papers and we had john peel so in a way you just kind of go to these places just like you know with a little begging bowl saying oh, what have you got today for us you know is there a reggae song or is there <laughs> right. a, a, a sort of an interesting rock song or is there a, you know a thrash metal song and and all oh, there's a country song that's very good you know thank you john you know and it was kind of right. quite e not easy but you know you kind of knew where to go so they they do so they were so brilliant you know I suppose you would call them the influencers like you do on Instagram right. but but with a bit more sort of substance <laughs> well it certainly was a surprise to me I, I of course knew about John Peel and the Peel sessions we had a whole section of Peel sessions records at WFMU and the record library but it was really I hadn't ever really thought practically about what having a how different the BBC system would be from like the commercial system in the United States and also um, how that would mean that you'd have like one person with a national show could really influence the whole country's sort of indie music scene. Like it didn't work that way here. So you would have, you know, pockets of programs that were influential, but not one program where, you know, if you were really um, interested in music, everybody would sort of pay attention to what it did. Yes. So that was a, um, that was a real revelation. And when we realized that, Peel, um, you know, was playing our record and that it sort of struck a little chord with him. Uh, you know, I was, of course, shocked and pleased, but I, I didn't realize that it would immediately kind of bring us other opportunities to come in over and play and, you know, to do some, you know, we definitely did more gigs, I think, around his, just based on the fact he was being such a supporter that it really helped us sell tickets and kind of make it possible to 
you know, come, we play ding walls, you know, like that kind of stuff. Um, <laughs> you know, I, obviously it's, you know, it's, uh, it's, it seems kind of funny in, in retrospect, um, but, you know, it was quite a busy couple of years of him, like, you know, at, once he'd sort of played out Tremblingkind, then he was, you know, uh, sending me postcards. Where's your next record, Laura? You know, like, we're, re <laughs> you know, we're ready. <laughs> we're ready for it. So. It's interesting because he he did love all those kind of um, like I remember him playing the Flying Burrito Brothers, Wild Horses, and being kind of mesmerized. So he was always very good, even though he was playing contemporary stuff. He'd often throw in those kind of classics, as is to say, don't don't forget, you know, there is this song here by Jackson Brown, there's this one by Grand Parsons, this is, you know. So he was always very, you know, it was a very kind of educational thing. But at the same time, you know, there would would be the new artists that. You, was always very exciting because you know it was literally the first album and or the first single so it was it was quite amazing it was like okay right you know she's coming to Norwich must go to Norwich <laughs> <laughs> you know he um I do think that Peel because he'd spent time in the United States and he did he was such just an incredible music fan himself and he he loved to sort of figure out what the story of things was you know we you know he just because I had a, a very pronounced and a deliberate um, kind of reference back to 60s country music and some of those classic artists like Merle Haggard, um, you know, he, he picked up on that and really shared it, you know, with my, he, he kind of got that part of my own sensibility. And, um, you know, it was really, uh, it was very flattering. Um, but it took me a while to figure out, like, what is it he really likes you know, about this? <laughs> and then I was like, oh, it's because he, he's got his own, in his own experience. He was in the States in the 60s when Merle Haggard and Buck Owens were everything on the radio. And so to refer back to that is like bringing this little personal experience back into, you know, how he's hearing this music. So it was, it was sort of a, a kind of lucky for me i think in a way that he he picked up on those things but um he certainly was very uh generous in sharing my music yes absolutely you know, he, did you i mean because because having done this show for a long time most people you know it's like you're not prepared for anything to really happen because mostly it doesn't but then suddenly you think oh my god this one's taken off you know and and so most bands have you know bizarrely seem to have this five-year period especially the indie bands you know they get together it's a real cliche, you know, they, they get a single, you know, John Peel plays it, they go, oh, this is amazing, you know, that's all we want, then there'll be a John Peel session, then it's like, oh, right, we'll do an album, do the tour around, you know, all these little clubs around, you know, the UK, and you should realise, you know, the UK is quite small, isn't it, you can just go from one place, because every city with or town had a little venue, so you could sort of play in front of 200 people quite happily, but then, you know, the second album, you must have had a lot of pressure to suddenly... I don't know if you had to give up your day job, but suddenly you think, God, we've got a second album. They've they've expecting the next. You know, did that was that quite a lot of? Uh, did that take a bit to get uh, used to? It did, and it was. Um, I still was working through my second album. I I um, so I was starting to really juggle. Um, you know the uh, having blown through all of my my, um, you know my vacation time and holiday <laughs> time so it was it was challenging um and I was still doing the radio show on the weekend so I was really juggling a lot I didn't yet have a kid so I had some free time on my hands um but uh, it was it was um I would say the pressure really came after the second album for me I, I still felt like we were 
you know, we'd, we'd had this momentum and, and from the time of releasing the album in 2000, then we came, you know, throughout 2000, 2001, we came and worked hard in the UK. We played festivals, we played whatever we could, you know, uh, legitimate gigs we could get. Um, but I probably came over four or five times each year. So it was a lot. Um, and then we were starting to work on the second record in between these trips back and forth. And, um, I felt with that record, um, when the roses bloom again, that I had still this sort of formula that I was, um, felt, uh, you know, still had, still felt valid, which was trying to write my own good songs, um, and have enough of those to represent my voice as a writer, but then other, um, songs to draw from that were, um, you know, not, uh, yet household favorites but um but were right by really great writers that i admired so on that second record we you know covered dave schramm who's a really fabulous writer based in new jersey um we had another dan prater tune who's a new york-based writer who had a, a song on the first album so these are not household names nobody's going to know you know who they are unless you're a really yes. deep music fan but they still so it, it allowed me to sort of like continue to shape this thing that had, you know, we didn't, we didn't change the sound too much. You know, we didn't, we maybe went to a studio for an extra day and tried to do a little less at home. So we'd have better mics and better, um, you know, some better sound quality, but otherwise we kept the, you know, pretty much the same group of players. We didn't add like tons. There wasn't a budget <laughs> to yes. like go all of a sudden like, Oh, now we're going to, you know, have Van Dyke parks do string section. Like there was, that's <laughs> Brian Eno come in and do <laughs> yeah. So it still had that very, you know, kind of organic feeling. Yes. Um, and, and, and it was, um, you know, a more successful record or equally successful, I guess. So we had a great experience of having a good reception for it. And from that, you know, we, uh, you know, Peel's continued support of it. Bob Harris's continued support. We, we were able to come back and still have that audience be growing. I remember coming to Folk Fest at Cambridge and, you know, just looking out like we we're on the big stage, you know, in the, not, not the headline, you know, act by any stretch, but, you know, really had great opportunities to play and to, to, um, you know, connect with this, this UK music audience. And you said something funny about how people are so enthusiastic in the UK. It really was true. Um, you know, I had been playing clubs in New York where you can barely get people to, you know, shut up while you're playing. <laughs> so to come play where people would listen and, um, and I think there was something that I hadn't counted on where there is sort of an, I think, natural understanding in the UK of the connection between British folk music and American folk and country music. So yes. that, that sort of, that kind of, um, there was already a, a fan base, you know, there were already people who, I'm not saying like, you know, every Kate Rusby fan embraced us or whatever. But the fact that there were, there was a whole scene of around Kate Rusby and the, this, yeah. you know, kind of British yeah. folk scene, like it, it wasn't that hard to, um, you know, to convince some of those folks to come to see us. And you had people so, like Eliza McCarthy, hadn't you, with that kind of, the, you know, right. Martin McCarthy. Because that album, you know, the second album, I mean, there's three, I, you know, there's a lot of, you know, I think it's a masterpiece, but I do love those, um, there's the Conqueror song, When the Roses Bloom Again, and Wait. And Wait is quite an extraordinary, I mean, it's such a delicate number, isn't it? I mean, that is, 
you know, again, it was kind of great because like you said, you don't do the really obvious covers, you know, they're ones that you left, had no right. idea, you know, you have to look and go, who wrote it? <laughs> um, but you think god that's just genius that is such a beautiful song uh, you know yeah it's an amazing song isn't it so it's great to um manage to cover that well it's also that was jay sherman godfrey the guy who produced our record wrote that song and he'd written a song on the first record called um little bit of you and they're both songs that i just admired i'd seen him play them in bands of his own um but we also i think benefited a little bit from this the the you know there was a little element of 60s pop music in our uh formula i won't say we were it, it wasn't really a formula it was really just what we all loved to hear um but i didn't realize it like we we'd uh you know have rickenbacker the 12 string guitar and to bring a guy playing rickenbacker to england and do shows with it people really got excited. I was like, is this really just all people who liked the Beatles? <laughs> like, you know? And they're just really excited because people don't play that Rickenbacker that often, you know, it was really kind of, uh, it, it almost felt like there were folks who appreciated those references, you know, and understood what they meant to us yes. and, and got them, you know, so, and I felt like wait was one of those songs. We always called it our country bad finger because oh, it was just yeah. like a, you know, it was more, I mean, the chords of it are hardly anything that, you know, Chet Atkins would have played, <laughs> but it did have that kind of retro pop feel that, um, you know, that we could, you know, kind of turn into our own version of folk rock. So. Yes. And we love, you know, the sentiment of rom romantic melancholia is always our favourite <laughs> go-to place, isn't it? Let's yes. face it. So then when you, you know, by the mid-decade and you're on your third album, and obviously this has been quite hard, you know, a lot of travelling and sort of keeping the show on the road. I mean, how did that sort of, and, and then obviously, you know, we had the horrendous news that John had died. I mean, how was kind of putting the third album together? You know, were you beginning to get you know, like, blimey, this is, this is getting quite a geek now. You know, um, I knew I had quit my job by the time we made the third record. I knew I wouldn't be able to do both um, at, well. And so I figured I was getting such a rare opportunity that I hadn't expected or, or anticipated to make music that I should just go pursue that and see what happened next. So um, that was... Uh, you know, our, our goal. Um, but we, you know, did a couple things differently with the third record. We actually partnered with a new label. So we went to the Matador label um, and there we knew them well, uh, knew people who'd been on Matador and, uh, you know, we were really hoping that they would help us accomplish some things that Shoeshine, which was a pretty small label and my husband and I here who had the label in the U.S., you know, couldn't do, like, we'd run out of, like, hands to do stuff. So yes. we thought, well, let's go partner with a label that's actually got a staff, at least. Um, but, you know, we did record with a bigger budget. We actually pulled in a producer who wasn't, um, you know, a member of the band. Um, we worked with J.D. Foster, who'd done Richard Buckner album and some other uh, great records. So, you know, we felt uh, like we were sort of kind of going up a rung um but there was a lot of pressure that came with that uh I think I felt though I'm now really love the way um the record sounds like some of expanding the sonic palette a little bit was um 
felt risky to me. Uh, I wasn't sure I liked it. it. You know, that's probably actually really natural <laughs> response to have when you change stuff up like that. But in the moment, it felt like, wow, what if we're all making a bunch of mistakes and this is going to, you know, sound too poppy and polished. There was more pressure actually um, in the U.S. to try to get on what they call here triple A radio, which is the adult album contemporary radio, which right. ironically now plays tons of uh, you know, you can hear the Smiths and New Order on AAA radio, I think just because they figured out um, that their demographic grew up listening <laughs> to that music. So they, and there's, there's way more dance music and stuff than there used to be. Um, but there was, you know, we were trying to up the production value because that was some feedback we'd had in the U.S. that, uh, you know, some places where might have played a song or two from those other records, but felt like the production sounded too indie. So, you know, we were kind of trying to figure our way with all of that. And that felt very fraught um, at times. Uh, but, you know, the, you know, now I'm like, well, they sound all great. You know, they, <laughs> the, you know, it's, it's not like there's, we made, went and did something that was so dramatically um, different. Uh, but, um, you know, in the moment, the, the progression felt sort of a little bit unfamiliar. Um, and then there were just more, there were more um, pressure to, you know, once you're on a label, they really do have sales targets and things that you're trying to hit. And I think pretty much by the day that we'd rehearsed the records, I mean, we released them, they'd already missed all of the targets, <laughs> like whatever the, you know, um, orders from uh, different um, record stores. Um, we, we did encounter, this was 2005. There was a big cliff drop off of sales right around this time, just generally. Um, so, uh, you know, we found that it was harder to get in like the chain stores in the U S like the orders and, uh, you know, Best Buy, like those places, um, yes. you know, had higher targets than we could hit. So it was, those businessy things were frustrating, but you know, when I think back on it, it's, you know, we were just trying to do, see what we could accomplish. And some of that stuff proved challenging, but, um, you know, there's still, uh, you know, it was a lot, we, we, we did accomplish a lot. So. Yes. Well, it's, a, you know, I still think it's a masterpiece and it's a kind of, a, and obviously it's a very emotional song that is kind of always hard to hear, listen to, obviously that's the one that you write for John. So when you sat down to think about, writing a song for him did how you know because that must be such a how do you manage to sort of convey all that emotion into, into a song how, how did you go about doing it well you know John um was he's such a um unique character but I also felt like I'd been already very lucky in my life to meet some other people who who um were similarly passionate to me um about radio and about um, very just uh, uniquely able to express themselves in via the medium of radio. Um, there was a very old uh, DJ guy from LA who I had become friendly with before I knew, before I met John, um, who was in his 80s and he, he'd, he'd also passed away. So I kind of had John's story and the the thoughts about this other guy he was such a um, just in, they, they shared this just intense passion and, and for what they had been able to do, you know, with radio careers. And I don't, I don't actually think of 
of uh, John Peel as a careerist. I think he really just was being himself <laughs> and it managed to suit the BBC to, to, you know, have, you know, he, he used that platform and, you know, so beautifully for so many years. And um, I did get the experience one time and I realize I'm rambling now, but um, I had, before I quit my job, I'd come over to do some shows and I, I was having internet problems. I was supposed to also finish some work for my corporate job. So I had to go to one of those, like, what were those places that were like easy orange or something? It was like the internet place with, um, it, it was like the same as your cell phone. I forget what they were called. Cause I had an orange phone and then orange there was, Mondays. Those... you should see those adverts in the cinema, wasn't it? There was, um... yeah. So anyway, it was a big giant room full of people on computers. So I had to go in London um, and I stayed in this one like until, you know, after midnight one night. And I realized as I was, you know, working away that um, the uh, they had the radio on and it was on Radio 1 and it was Peel's show. And I realized while I was sitting there that, I, that it was mostly college kids around me and they almost all were listening to it. Um, and it was this amazing, you know, kind of feeling like, oh, this is the way people actually hear this program in the UK. Like it's, you know, kids working at night or listening at night. Maybe you've done your homework or you're finishing something, whatever you're kind of, but it's like this accompaniment, you know, um, and, or, or almost like, um, you know, your, your favorite uncle or something is like there, you know, this kind of warm presence that is, you know, getting you through these hours when otherwise they're sort of dull and you're just yes. working and doing what you have to do. And so it was so delightful to get to hear that. Um, and I just, I just felt like, um, you know, I just wanted to somehow, uh, you know, kind of appreciate John and his, you know, his uh, ability to communicate with people that way. And, you know, so there's that, there's that line in the song about um, being on the wavelength, the heart can tune, you know, that, that kind of, um, you know, he was really uniquely able to be that communicator, that person who could keep you comfort, you know, um, even if you didn't know him. So it was, you know, that's a, that's a rare thing. Yes. Well, I, absolutely. It's, um, and he, yeah, he had little, yeah, the, the little links between songs were always nice. I mean, he often just sort of said what the record was, what label or who the musicians were, but then he'd sort of put in a little bit about his family, just enough, but not too much. And it was always good, but it was, you know, I just kind of realized when I, you know, I listened to that song and on the album, you know, it's like, you do capture it beautifully, you know, and it, at the same time, I just think, God, I couldn't imagine how, you know, how one does it really when, when there's so much, you know, it's like you're sometimes too close to something to be able to know how to edit it. And you don't want it to be just like a diary entry, you know, songs that become diary entries are never that great either, are they? You have to, to do some craft, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, I was a, a sort of taking a stab at it, but, um, but I felt like I also had that, uh, you know, some of the details, like the you know, the other lyrics about spending an hour in the waiting room and all those came from my other, my other friend who I was remembering also. And uh, so it made it, you know, not just about like one experience, but kind of having known these extraordinary characters who, um, you know, had shared that ability to, 
to you know to to connect with people so yes so did you after that experience I mean did you did the sort of did things become more difficult because obviously you said you'd given up your day job and then sort of sort of doing this full time but it sounded like things were getting kind of harder because of the kind of being on a major label or bigger label and at the same time you know knowing you had to start to have a bit more pressure from the industry to sort of hit things how did how did that sort of feel after you'd gone through that process well we just realized like um you know, we had some things go really well. We had some things go awry. We were had a tour planned of the UK that got cancelled. There were some bombings, that subway bombing and strife that year and oh, yes. in 2005. So some things then got delayed. And meanwhile, privately, I'm, my husband and I are trying to have a, a, a kid. And we're I'm sort of realizing like I'm running the clock here a little bit <laughs> because I was in my mid, mid-30s. And so... Um, you know, there was just sort of like a lot of time pressure sort of stacking up. Um, but, uh, so the, the reality of like now that I don't pay my rent with, uh, you know, a corporate job of, of having it all, it didn't all add up to, you know, sort of being an equal sort of seamless transition from one way of doing things to another. Um, so I, uh, you know, had to kind of figure out what that meant or how that would work. Um, and meanwhile, we were, uh, eventually I did get pregnant and I had a, a daughter and, um, you know, so I knew when I, uh, had my daughter that things would slow down in terms of being able to, um, you know, release music and tour and travel, that that was going to be a tough thing to do. Um, and that it would be that way for a few years and that would be, you know, so, uh, that kind of made it harder to follow up with Matador with the second album. Um, and so we parted ways with that label, but you know, I, I still, I mean, maybe I'm just an odd duck, but, uh, you know, I still feel like you're just, what I'm really after is trying to improve as a songwriter and, and, um, continue to, um, write things that feel good to me to write and express things that are um, important to say. And, um, and that's just my, you know, in that, when I look at it through that lens of just, you know, my, so working on those things, then that's really kind of all that matters. The other stuff about, you know, um, if something's like, you know, how are we going to sell it? <laughs> you know, it, it sort of drops away. And obviously things have changed a lot. You know, now there are, um, you know, many artists who could sell lots of records that are, um, you know, uh, putting things out themselves on Bandcamp. You know, just the, 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 the means of accessing the music kind of keep changing and, and that's okay to sort of Yes. live through it so so we because you've had two albums one which was kind of a, a collection of kitty kitty wells and then a, the the latest one which was um, about five years ago no way from no way there from here oh, didn't read that at all well um <laughs> <laughs> so so did that sort of uh, give you some more enthusiasm for sort of you know releasing a record well i with you know um the Kitty Wells project I did when my daughter was little. Um, and it was really just something I thought, we'll sell this at gigs. And then I liked it. I liked the recordings enough that we decided to put it out as a proper album. 
And uh, it did, it actually was the thing that I first came back to the UK to tour with um, after I'd had my daughter. So the first thing we'd done after, after Humming by the Flowered Vine. Um, so, you know, that was all great. Um, the, you know, by the time I was working on No Way There From Here, I had kind of had a stockpile of more songs of my own than I had had for the previous album. So um, that was very exciting to get to put out something that was more really relying on my own writing. Uh, you know, but the, I will say, I guess, just like the, um, it's maybe just in my makeup, like I take my time <laughs> doing things. So, you know, some, some people would, you know, I mean, I think the, the No Way There From Here record came out seven years ago, I think. So um, it's, you know, uh, and then we did the live at the BBC record, came back and, and did that uh, project. Uh, that was probably the last main touring that I've done in the UK. So, um, you know, it's, I'm probably not really answering a question <laughs> right now so much as just saying that I feel like we're, you know, I'm still kind of honing on my mission of like getting my songs out there and, yes. and, uh, you know, and doing them around, you know, what my life is now. Now my daughter is in high school and is a, uh, at a high school for the arts here in New York, like every age, you know, there's never one good age where you're like, Oh, you can, you can leave them for a while. <laughs> They've all had, you know, um, times when uh, or every age has seemed to be one where mom is essential <laughs> to what what goes on yes um, all quiet yes it's um, yes. not good to leave but did you i know i suppose that it was slightly the fact that you know you had that such an intense period you know it's almost like the rocket going up and it was going well and then you know obviously there's different sort of moments where you know the honeymoon period and then the oh this is quite hard and then you know like you said life takes over after that you know, five, six years of touring, being on the major label, and then sort of sometimes feeling a little bit exhausted by it and having to sort of regroup again and getting, I suppose, the mojo going, I think, <laughs> or kind of the, <laughs> the enthusiasm to think, yes, okay, that's that's been an interesting experience, but I'm not going to completely let it beat me. Oh, um, yeah, it just had that vibe to it, that's all. Yeah, I, I feel like it's just... Um you know, you, you, you know, talk about your, the kind of the five-year pattern for the indie bands, like, um, you know, you do get to a point where like the time frame starts to feel really stretched and you're like, you know, uh, if I come over this year to play gigs, will I be over again in five more years? Like, is that what the, what the yes. expectation going to be now? But, um, you know, I just feel like we've still, you know, had really great opportunities to play, um, I was, of course, planning um, for the year of 2020 was my 20th anniversary since Trembling Kind. So we had gigs planned in the UK and some stuff that we ended up having to scratch. Um, I think right now, with the way, um, you know, things are still kind of on hold for performing live, um, that my 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 next hope would be to, to be back over maybe in 2020. 22 so the yes. you know not this year but next year to celebrate the 20th anniversary of roses and just really generally you know have um you know have uh, an acknowledgement of of um you know all we've been able to do um in that time in the uk and how important it was to my you know getting having a career at all so um you know that's 
that's still exciting to me, even though it's really not, that's not the time frame I would have chosen for <laughs> it myself, that we can't do anything about it. So I guess no. And, and everyone's in the same sort of boat, aren't they? So does that right. mean that you're, you're sort of always got an album that you're thinking this is going to be working towards that next release? Well, so in 2020, um, actually on the 1st of March, I had started the crowdfunding campaign. It was the first time I had crowdfunded anything, but I decided to do that to do a, a ser series of singles. And those are um, underway right now. We've just, obviously with the pandemic, we started and stopped with the fundraising and things were delayed and we've not been able to be in the studio as much as we would hope. Um, we were actually planning to do some recording in the UK and that had to get scratched or delayed. So, um, but that's still very much like what, you know, my project is at the moment. So, and, and the songs are ones that I'd written in the last, you know, couple few years who, that have, um, you know, some of them were co-writes in Nashville when I was doing some writing with my publishing company um, with different writers than my normal collaborators. So, um, all of those things are like, you know, I feel like I have sort of a stockpile that's like stuff that's, you know, it will see the light of day, but we're still just now kind of figuring out, um, you know, the adjusted time frame. And probably by the time that's finished, I'm going to have a whole new batch of stuff because <laughs> it's taken so long with the pandemic, it's slow down and, and the pandemic itself has brought up other things um, that, you know, were, um, that I hadn't written about before. So, um, you know, that, yes. that's a different difference as well. So, you know, it's, um, I, I, I don't feel, you know, I'm very, I, I guess I'm feeling kind of confident that, you know, though delayed, we're still going to be able to come and do these things yeah. we're looking well, forward to. And as an artist, just kind of almost lastly, I mean, I remember interviewing Hank, Wankford just just last year just at the beginning of this and he was just about to do the you know, release an album it did come out but he you know, as an artist he said he's he's found finding it quite difficult to feel that creative even though you're normally thinking god I wish I could have the time to do something and just not have so many you know interferences and suddenly this comes along and you think mm, that's not quite what I wanted in the set it's not feeling right. very zen do you as an artist do you are you finding it you know either okay as to create or do you find it's like you know I know I was I sort of saw something from Alanis Morissette and she looked like she was having a lot of panic attacks on a daily basis I just wondered how <laughs> you were dealing with it and whether you were able to create something from from this kind of period well I will say it's felt very difficult and I think that you know there heightened anxiety heightened depression dealing with my family members anxiety you know having a teenager at this time who's changing schools and is not you know she's been in remote school uh here in our house for um the last couple of few months so um you know and adapting to every sort of individual like what what are they saying now can we do this can we eat in the restaurants no we can't <laughs> like so all those um you know sort of outside things that we can't control have been overwhelming yes. um I do feel like we've, as a family, we've actually um, listened to and enjoyed a lot of music together. And that's been something that's been really wonderful. Um, as a songwriter, it's been hard to kind of have the space to focus. But as I said, that uh, your perspective shifts because now it's not like I'm writing a little country tune about, 
you know, I don't know, some story song. It's more personal and um, that can be rewarding also in terms of reaching that place in order to express it. So I think that um, it's, it's sort of been a mixed bag, but not all bad. Um, oh, and good. in fact, you know, the, the, um, the challenges I think will come around to being something that will be creatively fruitful, but um, we've also just had, and maybe you all have some experience of this in the UK with your political si situation, but like all of our politics have just been dreadfully distracting also, um, which a couple of years ago inspired me to write a song I would have never written, you know, before. Um, and, and, you know, uh, again, I felt like that was an, that was an important thing to be able to experience. Um, but we're also really looking forward to getting a little bit of our, um, sort of attention spans back yes, so, not hitting uh, refresh on your newsfeed right oh goodness yeah the doom scrolling's <laughs> got to go it's not very um it's not very uh kind to songwriters um and, but i have to say also i've seen many peers struggling with this stuff also and having good days with it and bad so i just i think it's very natural and i i don't i think it's as as um understandable as any other person just reacting to what we've all had to go through yes and just and so just last thing if you were able to sort of tell your 18 or 16 or 18 year old self you know just a little bit of advice or, or a little bit of a like oh yes I just watch out for that or focus on this I just wondered what you would have liked to have just mentioned or whispered to them you know even if they might have ignored you you'd have thought actually I've learned some wisdom in this world I'll just tell you what it is, matey. Um, yes, I just wondered if there was something that you thought, yeah, I wish I'd known that when I was 18. Yeah, I, th I think I'd probably, um, well, I think, I'd probably uh, suggest that they not overthink things, you know, and uh, not have to be, you know, that's a bit of um, type of perfectionism maybe that can be not that productive, um, you know, when you have to kind of get it just right in your head so that you, um, you know, are, feel confident and that it's not really necessary. So that's probably something I would, would say, think less and maybe try to do a little more. <laughs> um, maybe not just my 18 year old self, but my today self <laughs> could also use yes. that message. Um, you know, and, and then I'll otherwise just enjoy it, you know, just enjoy, enjoy the whole ride. Well, look, yeah. this has been fantastic. I'm so pleased to eventually manage to, yes, we sort this, yeah, sorted this out. This is great. And, you know, like I said, I mean, I just, yeah, it's been fantastic. I've, I've loved your albums and, um, yes. And, and, uh, your version of new order as well. Love vigilante. It's just great. Yes. Thank you. I love, I, I loved doing that song and still, and performing it also. It's kind of like, you know, uh, the 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 little ghost story that uh, you know that's I'm no, no that's not quite how it was written but that's how you know what it ends up feeling like uh, to play it um, but thank you for having yes. me on and I well, really it, do appreciate it oh no it's great and also I think the Big Catanias did a Prince song didn't they When Doves Cry which was kind of like one of those moments which I have to say a good a nice melancholic cover is always good so um yeah there you go but look. <laughs> I will say, apologize. I know we're ending. You've had like the heat's on full blast, like the, the, all the New York sounds are happening. So I, your, your audience will just have to know that we, um, 
you know, we're we're true to our environment in the New York <laughs> yes. City apartment today. It's definitely yes, that's real. But anyway, at least it's all peace and calm and everything's going so well. So yes, quite a historic day, really. Anyway, look, take care and all the best for the year and hopefully see you in the UK very soon. Yes, and do let me know when this is going to air or how yeah. we can maybe let people know about it. I will. I'll send you, I can also send you the link and then you can put it, you know, on your social media platform sites. Perfect. Okay. Look, take care of yourself. Lots. Yeah, bye-bye. Yeah, take care. Bye-bye. Bye. And that is how you say goodbye with great gusto and confidence. Oh, you just slightly waffle, almost say lots of love, but then I didn't. <laughs> anyway, that was me in conversation with Laura Cantrell. Um, I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, well done. If you didn't, then don't worry about it. Um, you shouldn't have kept listening, really. Anyway, look, big thank you to Laura for that amazing interview. If you want to contact me, I know, for some random reason, you can. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. And also all these have been archived. So you can find hundreds of interviews with various bands. Mostly they're of um, indie pop, sometimes heavy rock. But they, um, I do surprise you with a bit of country. Anyway, this has been David Eastall, the C86 Show. Have a great week. Stay safe.